on this episode of Suspect Zero, the case of Robert Christian Hansen, a.k.a. the Butcher Baker. In Robert Cornell's short story, The Most Dangerous Game, an infamous hunter named Rainsford falls off a yacht and manages to swim to what seems to be abandoned and mysterious island. He suddenly feels safer as he approaches a large house on a cliff. He knocks at the door and is welcomed by General Zaroff, a seemingly classy and quiet man who lives on an island alone with his intimidating servant named Ivan. Rainsford is welcomed and invited to stay for dinner, as well as a very telling conversation. Zaroff explains that although he has been hunting animals since he was a boy, he has decided that killing big game has become boring for him. So after escaping the Russian Revolution, he moves to Ship Trap Island and calculatedly plans for passing ships into wrecking themselves, where he can then take the human survivors captive and hunt them for sport, giving them food, clothing, a knife, and a three-hour head start. Any humans who can hide successfully from Zaroff Ivan and a pack of hunting dogs for three days are set free. Zarov states that he has won every hunt to date. Rainsford is in total disagreement and views the hunt as barbaric, but Zarov replies by claiming that life is for the strong. Although this story is a work of fiction, it can't be excluded that there is a sick reality to this. As we have become more and more familiar with serial killers, their motives, and analysis of their mental state and background information, we are able to paint better pictures of the type of person who doesn't have any apprehension about hunting humans for sport. Many serial killers have explained how powerful and euphoric taking another person's life can be to them. They compare the feeling as being godlike. And since there is no positive connection between God and murder, it would seem more likely that it is evil-like. However, it does exist and it exists more than we can ever know. Today's podcast will focus on Robert Christian Hansen, aka the butcher baker who was an alaskan abductor hunter arsonist serial rapist and later serial killer who abducted prostitutes and hunted them in the wilderness in the early 1980s on june 13 1983 one of his victims escaped and told the anchorage police what he had done to her hansen denied the accusations notably saying that you can't rape a prostitute and was not initially considered a serious suspect yet Welcome to Suspect Zero, where we not only discuss unsolved cold cases, but serial killers whose crimes are lesser known or virtually unknown. I'm Dawn Washburn, and joining me is my co-host, Dr. Michael Artfield. Hello, Michael. Hey, Don. Uh, great intro. I, uh, I was naturally going to immediately go to The Most Dangerous Game as one of a few works of fiction uh, that either inspired or, or sort of presaged uh, Hansen's crimes and yeah. I mean there's no denying the parallel interestingly enough of course we know that the most dangerous game uh, inspired the Zodiac Killer uh, but this is certainly in keeping with the um, motto and credo and, and sort of philosophy of, of this podcast this is obviously a much lesser known case and yet uh, unlike the Zodiac I mean who was arguably hunting uh, humans I mean here's a just a, a sicko that sets his victims loose as, as game. Yeah. As soon as I, as soon as I started, you know, researching this case, that's the first story that came to my mind. Cause I used to tutor a student and I remember teaching him this particular story when he was in eighth grade. And um, right away, it just struck me as being the same thing where he takes them to the Island and, you know, he's hunting these, these women and prostitutes. He got a little bored with, he was actually a very avid hunter. 
this particular person, Robert Hansen. He he enjoyed hunting and actually had some very serious kills and was awarded for them. Um, so the irony that he would get sick of doing that and move on to um, hunting humans brought me right to that story. Yeah, naturally. And I mean, some of our listeners may have seen this in, in film. I mean, I can think of the 2005 Australian film. Uh, what's it called? Um, well, I can go back even further. The 94 film Surviving the Game with Ice-T and Gary Busey, where basically they recruit, um, you know, people on the streets to this lodge under false pretenses and then turn them loose and, and give them a head start and see if they can survive. And it's just all for, for sport. The group of basically uh, wealthy psychopaths get together and do this. Um, but Wolf Creek, by the way, that's the name of the, uh, of the Australian film where basically uh, backpackers in the outback are, are, are hunted like game as well. But in this case, we have someone who, uh, I mean, Hanson early on is identified as having uh, antisocial tendencies um, bipolar tendencies uh, and his first crime really is uh, he sets a school bus on fire as revenge for the fact that he was unpopular at school so he sees a symbol of the school and the symbol and everything that an innocuous you know chrome yellow school bus represents uh, is, is you know it's a source of, of, of rage and revenge and he torches it and this sort of sets in motion uh, what doctors would later call an infantile personality. When we, we all know people like this, very neurotic, self-obsessed, self-serious people who really fixate on uh, slights, um, injustice collectors. I mean, here's a term that's come up before where we see this with a lot of mass murderers who are injustice collectors and sort of fastidiously tabulate every time someone's looked at them wrong or or dissed them and eventually reaches critical mass and they go to a place again that symbolizes the source of their their anger and anguish whether it be a school a workplace a mall whatever um and unleash i mean this is really what started hansen's uh criminal career the difference being that he was incredibly methodical and actually beyond burning the school bus down really his his first crime that allowed him to become the butcher baker, you know, human hunter, is uh, was insurance fraud. So he claimed a bunch of his hunting trophies were stolen that he had insured for, you know, mm -hmm. a sizable amount, and used the money from the insurance payout. Uh, they weren't stolen, by the way. So he's defrauded his insurance company, and he used the payout to buy the small uh, prop plane that he used to to take his victims into uh, the Alaskan wilderness to hunt them down and, and, and kill them like animals. It's crazy. It, now, his mother was very submissive and the father was supposedly aggressive, but he had a stutter, too. So you were talking about, you know, some of the flaws maybe that, that help these people kind of want to get back at others for making fun of them. Or And he was also left-handed, and, and during his life, they were forcing him to use his right hand. So it was almost right off the bat, they were telling him that something's wrong with you and you shouldn't be who you are. You know, and I think that lends itself many times to that sort of ridicule and they you know initially you feel that you're not even right yourself and so when people start aggressively coming at you about your flaws this is what starts that process so you're right it does it does have that effect because um he would steal things and stealing would be something that would arouse him 
So maybe there's, you know, this, this, this control sort of thing where, you know, everyone else is controlling his life to a certain extent. And then he decides when he's going to start doing something that, you know, that he's in utter control of, it starts, it, it, it would give him an arousal because that's really the only place he can get it from. Well, so there's a couple of things going on there. I mean, what you described, I mean, you know, being singled out for being left-handed and, and, you know, forced to correct this. And then at the same time being reminded continuously that, you know, he has a speech impediment. I mean, this more generally is what you call the strain on theory of crime, whereby there are certain societal strains on people exhibiting certain uh, behaviors or from certain backgrounds or ethnic groups that naturally pressure them into or lead them into committing crime, uh, either to lash out at the source of the strain or because basically they've been socially engineered that, that you know, living outside of uh, conventional society is the only option because they've been, they have no other option. They, they've been sort of shunted into that category. And then you've come up with things like labeling theory uh, that explains, you know, you call someone a, an ex-con enough times, they just take ownership of the, of the title and there, there's no incentive to reform. Um, but at the same time, when you're talking about arousal from, uh, you know, stealing, we've talked a lot about paraphilias and I mean, the same as pyrophilia, pyromania, kleptomania, kleptophilia are, are, are two different things. So kleptomania we see, uh, we, we sort of see both in him in that his bipolar disorder when he's in manic, in a manic state, and I've, I've, as a police officer, I dealt with a lot of people in that manic state. There may be a different term for it now, but, uh, you know, who otherwise are functioning people in society will just go out and steal a car for no reason. Mm -hmm. So that would be kleptomania in a manic state, uh, you know, just sort of, voraciously and compulsively stealing things whereas kleptophilia is a very calculated uh and manner of, of theft or larceny uh for a arousal purpose or or deriving uh so first of all fantasizing about being a prolific thief and then deriving great sort of sexual status self-satisfaction from from you know pe everything from petty shoplifting to grand theft so we sort of see both going on here, and this is where this very dangerous constellation of sort of manic uh, clinical behaviors collides with uh, very deep-seated paraphilias. And you have ultimately, um, you know, as we see in, in his case, a, a ticking time bomb. And um, I mean, we've talked before about uh, our first episode was on Israel Keys, who mm -hmm. Used Alaska basically as as sort of his starting point for his homicidal holidays. It's interesting that Hansen then, in much the same way, saw murder as a source of, of deviant leisure. But he didn't leave the state. He he knew there was enough uh, targets within the state that he could just hunt down and and, and again kidnap, uh, sexually assault, and then when he was done with that, use them as as his as his big game and and fly them to remote locations while they were still captive and turn them loose. I can't, you know, just the unbelievable feeling that must be for these women to be, you know, in that position. So you can answer this question when I'm done, because I just want to I want to bring in Cindy Paulson, who was the person who kind of, you know, shed light on what was going on because she was able to escape. But it was June 13th, 1983. And Hansen offers Cindy Paulson $200 to perform oral sex. Um, she gets in the car, he pulls a gun on her, and then he drives her to his home in Muldoon, and there he holds her captives, captive, he tortures her, he rapes her, um, and then she tells the police that he had chained her by the neck 
to a post in the house in in the basement and then he goes to take a nap when he wakes up um he puts her in the car he takes her to the airport and this is probably where he's going to fly her to where you know this remote place that he's prepared to to use her as prey um and then she crouches in the back seat her wrists are cuffed she sees a chance to escape um as he's loading up the airplane um and when his back is turned she crawls out of the back seat she opens the door and she runs you know she runs out of there um and then when she's kind of questioned about what was happening she remembers him saying to her you know i'm not gonna hurt you um and said makes some kind of comment about the other girls so she had known that she was not the only one and so when she was questioned she told the police that there were seven that she knew of that um that he had said he said that he was going he you know something about the others and when she questioned that he said there were seven which again we don't know if that's really the right number or not you know there's probably so many more than that um but just to be able to get out of there is unbelievable because i think if she didn't escape that would he have ever been caught michael <laughs> i mean i mean we can't predict what would happen but i mean it to take him to a remote island like that no one even knows where this guy is even going i mean i think if cindy didn't escape this would have been going on for a, a, a much longer period of time i think you're right and i mean this is uh, debated constantly in, in circles from you know um criminology to and psychology to just basic uh self-defense classes is uh what do you do when you know you're being brought to a second or in this case a third crime scene location uh and you I mean if this person has already kidnapped you held you against your will and raped you and then says i'm not going to hurt you you know right. they're lying right and um i mean had she not seized that opportunity that very brief window of time to be able to escape i mean every serial killer there's there's someone who who sort of uh, is an outlier that breaks the cycle and, and that is often what, what leads to their being identified as the person who understands that if you're being taken to a second or, or for sure a third site that's probably the disposal location or if something else is going to happen there the offender is splitting up his crimes between locations which makes it exponentially more difficult to find the the victim and uh that they're there's a degree of organization and experience there that uh, should be very frightening. So you would obviously do what you could to make sure that you never got on that plane or in that car, uh, you know, in, in another circumstance or, or, or what have you. So, uh, yeah, there would have been more because we know of 17, uh, but many of these victims were only found because when the police finally searched Hanson's residence they found a map with i mean he had literally uh, first of all he found uh, souvenirs from many of the victims but other items that we may not know or, or you know we don't know who the owner was and they may be other victims that were never found but a lot of these remains were found because he had literally mar marked them with x's on a map mm -hmm. and these were remote locations accessible only by uh by vessel or by small aircraft so no roads so no, these are these are places that uh, no one would have ever gone looking, and we only knew about them and knew there were victims there because Hansen had had marked them on a map, like like a little treasure map leading back to where his, his victims were. I mean, in terms of disposal pathways, we've talked about the four disposal pathways, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So um, left at the scene, uh, you know 
transported, concealed, transported and dumped or concealed at the scene. And I mean, to fly a victim by aircraft to a, to a disposal location that has no, you know, waterway, has no roads, and is literally just like a, a, a semi-Arctic um, hinterland. Uh, I mean, that's it's without precedent. And no, we, had she not escaped, who knows how long he would have gone on for. We may not even be talking about him now because we wouldn't know that he existed. Robert Christian Hansen, known in the media as the Butcher Baker, was an American serial killer. Between 1971 and 1983, Hansen abducted, raped, and murdered at least 17 women in and around Anchorage, Alaska. He hunted many of them down in the wilderness with a semi-automatic rifle and a knife. He was arrested and convicted in 1983 and was sentenced to 461 years and a life sentence with the possibility of parole. He died in 2014 of natural causes due to lingering health conditions at age 75. And in as so much as he would cover up the crimes and and go to this great length of getting the airplane and taking them to the island and making sure they were secluded and with everything that he did. And this is something that I, I look at with serial killers a lot when we talk about this. Why are they keeping these trophies? I mean, it's it's all evidence. And it seems that they're trying to avoid creating evidence. I mean, we know why they keep them. I mean, this this particular person wanted to keep the victim close to them. Um, and it was a way of, you know, a constant reminder of, of what they've done, albeit, you know, horrific. But to me, it just seems that why would you why would you keep all this and put X's on any kind of map or, or on any anything? when you've gone to these great lengths to ensure that nobody does catch you by getting the plane and going to the island and taking the women out there and really leaving nothing to be found. And then there's all this evidence behind that they leave behind to be found. It's kind of like, you know, a little contradictory. Well, and this is where uh, crime scene signatures versus the modus operandi are so important because signatures or idiosyncratic behaviors, uh, you know, exhibited by the offender that have no logical purpose beyond sort of the, the fantasy or ideological value that it provides them uh, is, I mean, this is what makes each offender so unique and why you, when you see a signature, I mean, taking jewelry in itself isn't necessarily a, a signature unique just to Hanson. I mean, dozens of offenders that we know of and, and likely far many more hundreds uh, have exhibited that same type of behavior. But it's so it's not unique to them. But that is in terms of uh, a serial offender behavior, a signature in that there is nothing uh, instrumental to the successful carrying out of the crime uh, that that allows for. It is purely what we call expressive. So it has, again, a fantasy purpose, a sexual purpose, a nostalgic purpose. And the value derived from that overrides the enormous risk involved of, of holding on to this. Because you're right, it doesn't make sense logically. But uh, serial killers operate emotionally. And uh, keeping these things, much like posing a body, prolonging your time at the crime scene to, you know, pose a body in a certain way that will bring indignity or, or, or you know, to the person in death or shock whoever discovers it or just to take photographs or to sketch it or, or fantasize about it later and how it looked. None of this makes sense forensically or as a, as a countermeasure to avoid being detected or arrested. And yet they still do it. They still do it because 
the the same defects that lead them to commit their crimes in the first place are behind this. It's it's uh, are behind these behaviors. It's it's part of their hard wiring. So they can't just stop doing that. It's uh, it's fundamental to their uh, offending and, in to many sense, their 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 sexual and, and psychological makeup. And also, then very recently, right? Wasn't there um, another a victim who was identified as one of, as being one of his victims? Um, I think they called her. It's going I hope it doesn't. Um, Horseshoe Harriet. They, they had, yeah, we don't we don't know her actual name. That so okay. that's sort of like you hear a lot of, uh, you know, like the the Gwinnett County Jane Doe or what Jane have Doe. you. They'll be yeah. often a, a geographic association, and then some kind of either just placeholder first name or Jane Doe or John Doe, which are obviously are identified unidentified uh, remains of uh, females and males respectively. So yes, and there may be more. There may be more as uh, climate change and as uh, sort of um, various um, industrial projects and, and development reach further into what were previously back in the 70s and 80s uh, uninhabited and largely uninhabitable territories. Uh, and sort of as these changes occur, more victims may be found. I mean, if you want to think about it that way, that, you know, ultimately uh, these remote uh, sort of icy areas are going to reveal the dead. Yeah. So, you know, so this, this guy, I mean, we look at a lot of serial killers and we've been, you know, we've broadcasted quite a few of them and we've looked at their MOs and we've looked at, at, at how they, you know, how they operate, how they got caught. And this one was a little bit, I mean, I think Israel Keys is the one who's always striked me as being the, the scariest to me. Not that they're all not scary, but, for some reason, he's always been the one that stuck out in my mind because of how much, and, and I said this to you earlier, you know, in our podcast that when we had done it, but I had said that he was very versatile, you know, and you, and you went into the whole dissertation about how and why he was that way. And when I look at this particular person, you know, and I, and I heard him during the trial stuttering and, and still, still having those, you know, those flaws come along with him, even at that point. But how scary, you know, and when these people are in your, you know, in your orbit, as you would say, like, you know, you don't realize, you don't realize really the danger that is going on around you sometimes. For these women, you know, it's scary, but you can't tell them what, what to do and what not to do as a human being. But to be in this kind of business really puts that risk really in front of your face. You know, I don't know if I would be able to get into a car with a stranger at any t any given time, especially knowing what they're they want you to do. So the risk behind this really is something that people should really think about, because there's serial killers are around us more than we could ever imagine. And I think people don't think this happens as often as it does, but it does. And when reading about him, I thought to myself, you know, this is, it's another easy trap. You know, we, we talk about the hitchhiking women from the seventies who they get right into the car and it, it's, it's very easy. And this, you know, sex work, prostitution, dancing, it, it's a very risky business, very, very risky business. And it's, it's sad that they can't feel safe, but it's definitely something that, that pushes these people to, to see an opportunity and to seize it. Very scary. 
Yeah, I mean, in the lines of work that you, that you mentioned, as well as others, uh, are naturally going to bring you into the orbit of people with high-risk paraphilias. I mean, that, that's just the way it is. I mean, um, so, and, and it need not only be uh, what would, you know, historically be classified as marginalized high-risk lifestyles. I mean, when you look at uh, the, at the very least, from other experts, uh, anecdotally, highest risk occupations of being a targeted stranger. Uh, you've got, um, you know, model or or or, or entertain. So, including a dancer, uh, you've got uh, a waitress and you've got a nurse. So, what do those three occupations have in common? You're interacting with strangers. Uh, you're working odd hours frequently, uh, and you have to be. Uh, you know, nice to people. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, the person you're talking to may have a completely different interpretation of the relationship that they're now in with you. Uh, often these jobs, if you think waitress and nurse in particular, you're wearing identifying information so they, they can get your name. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, the encounter may not occur in, during the first meeting, like I said. Uh, these people can be found in predictable locations accessible to the public uh, and they can be watched and not just a single person, but a certain type of person, right? Anyone in those jobs, uh, you know, when we think traditionally about, you know, sex trade workers, very high risk as, a, as an outcall escort or as a, as a street prostitute. But I mean, if you think of some of these other more uh, benign jobs uh, that, um, you know, are, are deemed sort of uh, professions or, or semi-professions or vocations at the very least, then um, they're just as, as dangerous for the, for the very reasons you mentioned, Don. Yeah, you know, and we, we always say we like to raise awareness and I don't like to, you know, tell people what to do, but I just want them to be aware of their surroundings and what's happening because you just never know whose car you're getting into. You never know who you're meeting at the bar. You know, you know, just very recently, I, I saw something about a girl who um, went into almost paralysis because somebody slipped something into her drink at, at a bar, like at a bar, you know, innocently sitting there. And I guess he offered her a drink and slipped something into it. And next thing she knows, her friends are carrying her to the hospital. And she's in an extreme state of paralysis, you know, so just it, things you just don't, you know, you don't think on the daily could be happening to you, but they can be happening to you. Yeah, and, and and I mean that's good food for thought. And, and one final thing that we haven't addressed is uh, the Hansen case is interesting in that, unlike a lot of the offenders who we chronicle, again lesser known offenders, obscure offenders, and obscure cold cases. Uh, and next week, by the way, we'll be back with with a cold case, uh, a Canadian cold case actually, uh, very uh, you know very lesser known, uh, but very interesting. Um, but in Hansen's case. Uh, this was not an offender who, because of uh, his, many of his victims were the missing, missing you know, victims no one is, is looking for until you've got a survivor who alerts you to this behavior uh, and, and then sort of they begin connecting the dots after that. So no one was actually out looking for this guy. It's not as though there was a, a predator on the streets, well, there was, of, of Anchorage, but that the media had, had said, you know, the hunt for you know, fill in the blanks with a spooky moniker that the media assigns to, to these guys. His name, the Butcher Baker, um, which is sort of a, a tortured, um, convoluted nickname for a, 
killer, but I mean, basically it's because his family owned a bakery and I mean, so a butcher and a baker are two separate vocations, but they thought, you know, cause he butchered and hunted humans. He's a, he's a, he's a baker who's also a butcher. So they came up with this name, but it was only after his arrest and once he was at trial. So, I mean, it was, it was used really to, to sell newspapers, uh, with respect to a case that uh, until he was arrested, no one really knew he existed. I mean, he was a suspect zero then, and now that the tides washed over the last you know, 45 years, he is again now. Uh, so very seldom do we see these, these monikers, uh, sobriquets, as we call them, being assigned after the crime spree is over, uh, once they're already in custody and in, in that trial. And maybe we can talk about this in a future episode, but in terms of the, the ethics of, of marketing killers, you have to look at what the advantage is uh, or how these, these nicknames come about organically while the crimes are being investigated and people are rightfully scared and they don't have a name for the person. So that they, often they'll, they'll coin this, this, this placeholder, you know, the ripper, slasher, strangler, uh, stalker, whatever. It's another thing entirely to come up with a fanciful name once the person is in custody and you just want to almost lionize them you know his 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 his, his given name wasn't enough they had to come up with after the fact some kind of uh some kind of title for this for this character and uh i mean that's just something to talk about later because we haven't really talked you know haven't really delved into the, the whole ethics of reporting including through true crime productions on serial killers. And it's a huge, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a real live issue. That's a great point. I would love to delve into that in another episode for sure. Cause that's uh yeah, that's something that we do look at. And, and a lot of times I think they like having these monikers, it almost gives them a little bit of, of notoriety and celebrity status, which, you know, shouldn't really be happening, but yeah, we should well, that's, definitely that's talk. What about happened that. here is yeah. it was, it was it was a shameless attempt to celebritize him versus uh, a name that could get people's attention while he was at large and get people to sort of um, close ranks and, and, and watch out for each other. And it, and it becomes part of the parlance of the investigation at that point, the, the name assigned to the unknown killer. But once he's known, why does he need a name? Why does he need uh, beyond his given name that he's on, you know, that he's being tried under? But anyways, something for another time. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I didn't think of that. But okay, so we can wrap it up here. Um, next week, we have an interesting case coming up, one I've never heard of. So I think it's going to be something that the audience is going to take to. And if they have any information, it would be great if they kind of looked into it because someone knows something. All right, guys, see you next time on Suspect Zero. On the next episode of Suspect Zero. The unsolved cold case murder of Jillian Fuller.